0: Well, let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter number three. You might have noticed that here on the sides of the auditorium, we've got some new banners. Uh, this is going to be our theme, our focus uh, for uh, the, um, I guess, for several months coming up. And I'm going to preach on it here tonight out of Philippians chapter number three. And uh, hopefully we can realize this morning that there's a sense of urgency in the message that God has for us today. When I think of a sense of urgency, I'm reminded about the uh, gentleman that he went to turn out all of the lights and lock up before bed, and he noticed that there was a flashlight shining out in his outbuilding. And so he opened up the door, and he was able to look in, and he saw five men uh burglars that were taking things out of his shed. So immediately he called 911, and uh, the 911 uh, officer answered the phone, and he says, I need someone out here immediately. I've got five burglars in my shed that are robbing me. And uh, the 911 attendant said, well, uh, we'll try to get somebody there as soon as we can, but all of the police officers are tied up right now. And so he hung up in frustration, and a few minutes later, he called back. And he said, no need to send anyone out here. I went ahead and shot them all. (laughs) And so uh, just in a few minutes, you know, police cars and ambulances and all kinds of service vehicles just flood the driveway. And so um, they ended up catching the thieves red-handed. And uh, one of the officers said to the man, he said, I thought you said you shot him. And he said, I thought you said no one was available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny because there's a lot of truth to it. Well, two quick verses here in Philippians chapter number 3, verse number 13. The Apostle Paul says, brethren, and by the way, this is a message to Christians. If you're here this morning and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you've repented of your sins and truly put your faith and trust in Him, then that's who we are speaking to here today. That doesn't mean that there's not a message for you if you're not saved here today. But let me just say at the beginning of this message that if you're not saved, the most important thing that you can do is trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There is nothing more important in this world or eternity than to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Brethren, he says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I want to preach to you on the theme. It comes from... Verse number 13, this one thing, this one thing, let's pray. Father, bless the message today, bless this dear congregation, all of our guests, those that are uh, newly been worshiping with us. Uh, we pray for all of those that have been members here for many, many years. Lord, all of us as believers, uh, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us here today today. Lord, I ask personally and publicly that you'd use me to bring this message to this congregation, to those that are perhaps listening over live stream, and those that perhaps would download the messages at a later date. Lord, I ask that you'd help me to get out of your way, and I just ask that you would get glory and honor. We pray now for the blessings of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This one thing. The Christian life is kind of a just a crazy thing when you think about it. It's simple and complicated all at the same time. And there are so many things that we need to know and we need to understand. And I think about how many times I've preached messages and I've said, this is the key, this is the most important thing. And then a month later I preach something and I say, this is the most important thing. There are a lot of things that are important. But today we draw from something that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentile church, the Apostle that has set forth church-age doctrine in all of its details, and he says regarding his own Christian life that there is one thing that he stayed focused on. Now, as I think of that by way of introduction, I think about God's people throughout all of the millennium. And my heart and my mind goes all the way back to an example of the Christian life, and that would be the children of Israel. In Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4, the Bible says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I think about these children of Israel that God brought out of the land of Egypt. And God says that He wrote about them for our learning, for our admonition. If you would hold your place in Philippians and turn back just a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And as we read down through verse number 11, I want you to think about, I want to put yourself, just ask you to. Put yourself in this narrative. Now, the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt. And if you've even seen the old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, you know a little bit about the story. God raised up a man named Moses to deliver the children of Israel, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. We know how that God sent plagues and miracles upon Pharaoh. God brought the nation of Israel out. He parted the Red Sea. They crossed over, they went into the wilderness, they spied out the land that He'd promised them. They came back, ten spies gave an evil report, two gave a positive report. The entire congregation, they believed the ten spies. And then they started talking about stoning Moses, their leader. And they forgot about the miracles. They forgot about God's deliverance. And all they could think about is what they were missing out on. Their their affection, for some reason, they, they had this great affection for garlics and leeks and onions and different things that they had back in Egypt that they didn't have in the Sinai wilderness. And yet, what was going on in the wilderness couldn't even be compared to a land that God had promised to bring them into, a land that God said was a land flowing with milk and honey sometimes my mind pictures that land flowing with milk and honey and i see a a creek with milk flowing down it if you got a creek full of milk there's got to be some kind of plants growing on the bank that have chocolate chip cookies on them wouldn't you agree and then with milk and honey and i just i just think about you know the trees or maybe the rocks and you just see honey just oozing down, and it just sounds like, I I don't think that that's exactly what it looked like, but I think that the adjectives are effective. When I think of the term, a land flowing with milk and honey, that just sounds like a good thing to me. And that's what God had promised them, but at this point in their life, they weren't trusting, they couldn't see what God had promised. All they could think about was their current circumstances wandering around in the desert. So picture yourself as one of these. And it says in verse number one, Moreover, brethren, once again, Paul's talking to brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There we see a use of the word baptized, which obviously refers to being immersed. They Listen, they didn't get wet in the Red Sea. They didn't get wet in the cloud, but they were immersed in it as they passed through the Red Sea. Verse 4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, and they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So obviously, this analogy of the children of Israel is spiritualizing it so that we can see their heart, their behavior, their attitudes, and see how it relates to us today in our Christian life. Verse 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we have a generation of Christians that it is a lifestyle to lust after evil things. God says the children of Israel were an example. God didn't put up with it then. God will not put up with it today. With some of them, God was not well pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's an example. We need to take heed to that example. Verse 7, "...neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them." As as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Sounds like the average life in America today. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Sounds serious, brothers and sisters. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. We see in verse number 11, now all these things happen unto them for in samples. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have an example of the Christian life in the Hebrew Children of Israel, that nation, as they wandered around in the wilderness. Physically, the entire nation left Egypt. Spiritually, many did not. And isn't the Christian life all about where our heart is? I mean, our body can physically be in the house of God today, but it doesn't mean that our heart is in the house of God today. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 11, verse number 4, it says, "...and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? And speaking of the children of Israel, they all came out of Egypt, but God refers to them as a mixed multitude." It's not the outward place of us physically. It's not the different things that we claim to be today. Today, people claim, well, I'm a church member, or I've been baptized, or I've done this, or I've done that. None of those things matter if our heart is not right with the Lord. God says this was a mixed multitude. Physically, they all came out, but spiritually, there were still many of them whose heart was still back in Egypt. Which is crazy when you think about it. They were in bondage in Egypt, but they preferred, they preferred the bondage of Egypt because at least, at least they knew what to expect from day to day. At least they knew that if they wanted to grow a garden, they could go grow a garden. They didn't have to be completely dependent upon God. They were so, so deceived by their own heart, thinking that God was going to bring them out into the wilderness so that he could play some trick on them and destroy them. God was not... Trying to trick them. God was trying to bless them and prepare them for something that they couldn't even, couldn't even imagine. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. All they knew about Canaan land was just things that their grandparents had told them about from generation to generation. They'd never seen it. They'd never smelled it. They certainly had never tasted it. And so spiritually, their heart was still in Egypt. Some of them were physically in the wilderness, but spiritually, praise the Lord, they were in Canaan. The Bible says in Numbers 14, 24, one of those two spies that I was talking about was a man named Caleb, and it says, this is God speaking, he says, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully... Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went and his seed shall possess it. So here's Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that came back and they said, yeah, there's giants and they're well armed, but God is able to help us overcome them. While the other ten spies said, oh, we just look like little grasshoppers in their sight. We, We can't go. And they didn't trust God. God said, look, This whole congregation is in the wilderness, but there are some whose heart is in Canaan. They're not content in the wilderness, and they're ready to move forward. They don't want to go back. They want to go forward. And then, of course, probably the majority of this entire nation were physically in the wilderness and spiritually in the wilderness. They weren't back in Egypt in their heart. They weren't rebelling, they weren't murmuring, but they weren't ready to trust God and take the risk and move forward. They were in the wilderness physically, they were in the wilderness spiritually as well. And that's where I think probably the majority of God's people are today. You, see, you take these people that were in the wilderness physically in the wilderness spiritually you think about how dependent that they were on the leadership of Moses they 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 were just followers who had no faith and they had to go by the faith of someone else too often we if we had to stand on our own two feet spiritually without the pastor or the grandparents or the parents, where would our life be? We'd just be wandering around out in the desert, just like the children of Israel. And so the question is asked, where are you today? Let's go back to our text in Philippians chapter number three. And let's talk for the next few minutes about this subject of this one thing. Now, the interesting thing, as we read our text, Paul says, this one thing I do. But what's interesting to me is that this one thing is actually two things. And the the thing about those two things is that neither one of them works without the other. That's why he refers to it as one thing. I know some of you men have used epoxy adhesive. It comes in two parts used to be that you'd have two different tubes and you'd have to squeeze them together and mix it. One would be red and the other would be clear. And as you'd mix that together, it would start a chemical reaction. It didn't have to just dry in the air. And it would literally dry and bond. Some of it will dry and bond rock hard solid in less than five minutes. And now they make it in just all in one tube and it's got two little compartments and you just squeeze it and they both come out at the same rate. You mix it together. One without the other is just a bunch of sticky gooey stuff. But when you put them together, it's extremely effective. And it's the same way with our one thing in the message today. They both have to work together. And so that brings us to the first thing. Number one, we find it in verse number 13. Paul says, but this one thing I do. And he says, forgetting those things which are behind. Let me repeat that. Forgetting those things which are behind. That is the first part of the one thing that Paul said that I do. The one thing that we need to do, whether we're in Egypt, whether we're in the wilderness, whether we're in Canaan, this is the one thing that every successful Christian, call it what you want, call it victorious Christian living, call it a successful Christian life, call it whatever you want to call it, but the bottom line is this one thing is something that every one of us need to have a strong handle on if we're going to live this Christian life, forgetting those things which are behind. We need to understand what it means to forget. Now, rather than just as I normally would do, give you a Webster's 1828 dictionary, I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap just for a moment, and we're going to allow the Bible to give us a definition of what it means to forget. Forget. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to draw your attention to the opposite of the word forget. What was that? Oh, yeah. Remember. Remember. Now, if you study the word remember, many, many times in the Bible, but interestingly enough, the first five times that we find the use of the word remember, it's all in reference to God remembering something. Now, God doesn't suffer with forgetfulness like I do many times. Don't you hate it when you forget important things? I mean, I'm still fairly young, but I still find myself sometimes just forgetting things that like, Wow, I've had times when I've had a lot going on in my mind and uh, someone has, you know, has come around the corner and I go to shake their hand and I like calling people by their name and it's just, it won't come. And I think I've done that with Anna before. <laughs> it, it just, it's like, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we had a, we had a fairly new guy in our church in Idaho. He ended up becoming a good friend of mine, but when he first started coming and he didn't know anybody, it was about the same time that we had moved to Idaho from Asheville and It's a kind of a southern thing that you call everybody brother sister. And by the way, that does help if you can't remember their name. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. But that was just commonplace, whether we knew their name or could remember their name or not. We did, hey, brother. Hey, sister. Well, this particular brother was, I had a chance to say hi to him. I said, hey, brother, how you doing? And he looks at me and he goes, my name's Jack. And I go, I know. (laughs) And then he's like, oh, he made him feel real dumb. (laughs) Some of the guys from Idaho know I'm talking about. (laughs) And I thought, I know, I just, that's what I do. I call people brother because you're saved, right? Yeah, I'm saved. Well, then you're my brother in Christ. I didn't forget his name. God has never forgotten anything. Isn't it amazing about the mind that God has, that he has every single one of your hairs numbered? Of course, some of you, that doesn't present that big of a challenge. I understand that. But for others, that's a just one head of hair is a big challenge. But he's got the hairs of every head of every person numbered. And if you were to pluck one of those hairs out and say, okay, God, what number is that? He could, he would tell you that without having to do any math on a piece of paper or get out his calculator. He just knows it. So God has never actually forgotten anything. But yet the first five times that the word remember shows up in the Bible is talking about God remembering something. We just saw one of them this past Wednesday night talking about the ark and the flood where the Bible says that God remembered Noah. I read that God remembered his covenant with Noah when he saw the rainbow. And what a travesty that a perverted group of people have stolen the symbolism of the rainbow from God. It's a shame because that rainbow represented God's covenant. When we see that rainbow, it shouldn't make us think of diversity. It should make us think of God's mercy that he promised never to destroy this earth with a flood again. Now, personally, as I see this earth getting more and more wicked like it was in the days of Noah, when I see that rainbow, I'm glad that I can be reminded of the mercy of God. I see in the Bible where it says that God remembered Abraham, and so on and so on. It it doesn't mean that God had forgotten, but rather, as we take the text and the use of the word remember, it means simply that God is purposefully giving something His particular attention. God knows and understands all things. But God in His sovereignty, God in Him being such a great big God, is somehow able to block out of His mind some of the things that are going on that He doesn't want to give His particular attention. Listen, I'm glad that there's been times in my life that in my behavior that I didn't have God's particular attention at that moment. And I guess maybe that's one of his attributes that allows him to be merciful to all the wickedness that goes on in the human race and on planet earth. But when God says he remembers something, it means that he's purposefully giving something his particular attention. I believe the same thing works in reverse. When Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, it doesn't mean that I can erase those things from my memory. You know, there's things that I type, and my typing skills, sometimes, man, if I'm just my brain's clicking in my fingers, I can just type something out and not even look at it. But more often than not, my fingers will get off the keyboard just a little bit, and I'll be doing this, and I'll look and I'll go, What what is that? Hieroglyphics. And so what do I do? I hit the delete button, and it just erases that all off the screen. Not like the blonde secretary that's typing a bunch of stuff, and boss comes in, and on the computer screen, there's whiteout all over it. <laughs> that is an old one. <laughs> you can delete that. I'm told that everything that you do with the computer, there's something in the hard drive. It's still there, except for Hillary's computer. But anyhow, moving right on along, there are things in our past that we cannot erase from our memory. I have seen things that I wish I could unsee at Walmart. (laughs) I wish I could unsee that, but I can't. So forgetting doesn't mean to erase it from our memory, but what it means is that I purposefully choose not to give something my attention. Now, I don't know about you, but that's extremely practical and that's extremely helpful to me, and I trust it is to you as well. Winston Churchill said, if the present quarrels with the past, there can be no future. And so there are some things that we need to learn how to leave behind. Number one, things we have done. The sins that we've committed, things that we have done, we need to learn how to leave that in the past. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are saved, praise the Lord. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son is perfectly effective in washing away every sin that we've ever committed. If you don't believe that, read 1 John chapter number 1. It says that we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from ALL sin. All sin. Thank God that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse my sin away, and I can leave it in the past, Forgetting those things which are behind. Secondly, and this is a doozy, we need to learn to leave behind the things that have been done to us. And no doubt, there are some horrible things that people do to people. There are horrible things that are done to children. There are things that affect us and we carry it into life. No doubt, as I'm speaking this to you, that some of you, just putting that focus and that attention on that, it brings up that feeling and that memory of something horrible that has been done to you in the past. Can I say to you here this morning, we've got to learn how to leave it behind. Listen, What has happened to you, while it may be horrible, while it is horrible, don't let it define who you are. I've said this before, let it refine you, not define you. Listen, there are some things that have happened to you, you can either become bitter about it, You can either hate the person that has committed that against you or you can figure out some way by the grace of God to give that to the Lord and to move on and hopefully maybe God can use that wound in your life, use that scar in your life to help somebody else who also is hurting. Let it refine you. Don't let it define you. And then number three, we need to learn to leave behind Our successes. Our successes. In our text here, if you back up a few verses to verse 7 and 8, Paul is talking about his pedigree. He's an Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was faultless concerning the keeping of the Old Testament law. But he said in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Sometimes we need to learn... How to leave our successes in the past. Listen, I think about Lot, Abraham's nephew. God had to drag him out of Sodom. If he had any sense about him, he would have been fleeing Sodom long before the angels ever showed up. But once they drug him out of there, the Bible says that his wife looked back. You know what? She couldn't. Leave the past in the past. And how often, how often do we have believers today that just can't let the past go? Now, God hasn't turned you into a pillar of salt. But if we live in the past and we let our past sins, our past wounds, our past successes define who we are, we might as well be a pillar of salt because we're of no value In this life that we live, we certainly are not living victoriously the life that God wants us to live. And by the way, when we think about our sins, our hurts, and our successes, how do you and I stack up as we measure our life with the Apostle Paul's life? Paul said, That God saved him and he was the chiefest of sinners. The chief. He's at the top and God said that, or Paul said that God saved me. You think about the things that were done to him. Hey, I've had some things that have been done to me, some hurts and some betrayals and some rejections and some things that hurt my heart. But listen, I've never been beaten like Paul was beaten and whipped and I've never been made fun of and mocked the way that Paul was. Listen, the things that have been done to us in comparison to the apostle Paul, really, they just, they don't measure up. And then not only that, but his successes. And even in all of his success, Paul says this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. I read a story about General Robert E. Lee after the Civil War. He was talking to an older lady at a plantation in Virginia, and he was speaking to her, and she took him out uh, to the front of her, what was left of her home, and there was this large tree that had no doubt been around for a long, long time. And you could see that this tree at one time was a large, beautiful tree, and she said, we built our home around this tree, and now look at it. It is literally shredded because of Union cannonballs and because of Union fire and bombs and so forth. And the tree was literally splintered and shredded. And she looked at Robert E. Lee and said, what are we going to do about it? Robert E. Lee looked at her and said, "Ma'am, if I was you, I'd cut it down and forget about it. And you know what? Sometimes our life is like that shredded tree from some battle or some conflict or some sin in the past. And what we need to do is, instead of harboring that and show and tell all the time, we need to just cut it down. Use it for firewood. Make something out of it. But remove that reminder so that we're able to not give particular attention to something That's in our past. And that brings us to the second part of the this one thing. And that is reaching forth and pressing toward the mark. Verse number 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to reach? Reaching means stretching out the arm. Stretching out the arm. You know one of the exciting things about serving Christ is discovering how that God can do things in you and through you that you never thought were possible. You know God doesn't have all of us do the same things. We're all different. Not everyone preaches a sermon or pastors a church. Not everyone goes to Papua New Guinea as a missionary. Not everyone is a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. But every single one of us, God wants to do things in us and through us that we never ever thought were possible. Hey, I've known people in Christian churches that just wanted to sit there and be quiet and not do anything and not have any attention drawn upon them because they just didn't think that they could. And then God gave them an opportunity to do something and They reluctantly step forward and say, okay, I guess I'll do it. And then they find out that God blessed them for it. And then a little while later in their life, they do something else that's a little bit out of their comfort zone. And they find out, wow, I did that. And then their whole life is just a little bit more here, a little thing here and a little thing there. Until the next thing you know, they're doing things that they never imagined that they would ever do for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it started by reaching, by stretching, by getting uncomfortable. Philippians 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Years ago, we would take our junior high group to a ropes course up in McCall, Idaho, where we had our camp. And this ropes course, there was a number of different things that they had a zip line. That zip line, you didn't just climb up a ladder. You had to climb up a ladder on one tree, and then you had to hand over hand with a rope and a net over to the next tree. And then you had to climb up and get on the zip line and then zip down. That that one, yeah, that was a little scary, but nothing like the pole and the hoop. They had a big pole that you had to climb up, and then you had to get, You had to literally stand on the top of this pole, and out in front of you was a big giant ring that was secured to two trees, and you had to jump off of that pole and try to grab that ring. Now, you had a a harness, a safety harness, and I remember watching these junior high kids from down on the ground and thinking, you know, they're all terrified, and I'm thinking, come on, jump, what's the big deal? And then it was my turn. I got up to the top of the pole, piece of cake. That was no problem. But getting from the top rung to actually putting your feet on the top of that pole. And listen, there's nothing here to grab a hold of. And, you know, I could do it if I was only two feet off of the ground, piece of cake. But when you're trying to do that, And everything's shaking like that. It's like, wow, this is hard. And then you jump out to that ring. Some of the junior high kids, they jump out there and they grab it. And I thought, that looks like a piece of cake. Well, I didn't compensate for the fact that I weighed about three times what those junior high kids weighed. Yeah, maybe twice. And so when I jumped out, the pole flexed this way. And it's like, Ah. And my fingertips just touch the ring. And then you free fall for a long, long ways, it seems like. And then the safety harness catches in and then they just lower you down. And you know what was crazy? It's like as soon as I got on the ground, it was like, wow, that was fun. Let me at it again. No reluctance the second time, because it's like, that wasn't so bad, that was fun. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to learn this one thing, not only to forget those things which are behind, but learning how to reach forth, pressing toward the mark, reaching out for those things that are before. The term pressing. Pressing means energy against resistance. And you know, I don't think I have to tell you, there is a lot of resistance in the Christian life. You know where it comes from? Everywhere. It comes from within. I'm my worst enemy most of the time. This old stinking nature, this flesh of mine that doesn't want to do the right thing, loves to do the wrong thing, keeping it under subjection to Jesus Christ, and then... There's others. You know, sometimes other people's sin natures will cause us resistance where we can't be what we know we ought to be. People provoking us, people discouraging us, people depressing us, and then throw into the mix that there is an unseen realm around us that's filled with the devil and his angels. And they're very real, by the way, even though we've never seen them. And they work their wiles, they work their deception, and they are there to hinder God's people from living. Hey, the devil was thrilled for 40 years as the children of Israel just wandered around out in the wilderness, and while some of them continued to complain and murmur against God and God's man, the devil's just laughing the whole time. And so, yeah, there is resistance. Pressing means that we are exerting energy. When we press, it means that there's going to be some pain. We use the term bench press, pressing weight. And you know what? If you've ever pressed any weight before, doesn't matter if it's weights at the gym or a sack of potatoes or a bale of hay when our muscles are exerting the energy against resistance and you do it repetitively or you try to do more than that muscle seems that it can handle, it causes pain, it causes fatigue, and it requires patience. This one thing, brothers and sisters, we've got to press toward those things which are before. I don't remember what this was on, but Anna and I were watching something here a while back and it was um, these men in Latin America, one of the South American countries, and uh, they were addicted not just to weightlifting, but they were addicted to having large muscles. And they had figured out some way that was even quicker than like anabolic steroids. And they'd figured out some kind of way where they would inject this oil, it was, I, I, if I understood the program correctly, it was the equivalent of like cooking oil. They would inject this in their muscles and and literally their biceps were just huge and it just looked deformed. And as they continued to inject that in, I guess their body wasn't able to absorb that oil and it just was causing all kinds of problems. And they knew it. They'd go to the doctor and they get infections, but they were so addicted to having large muscles, and they weren't satisfied with just weightlifting, that they had to take that shortcut. You know, that sounds kind of crazy. You think, wow, why would anybody want to do that? And you know what that is? That's the equivalent of modern Christianity today that desires a victorious Christian life without going through the steps of sanctification and holiness and righteousness that God has prescribed in His Word. Oh, we want this wonderful Christian life and we think that we can get it just by having some kind of a positive attitude and mentality. And that's why many of the modern, well-known preachers today Don't preach the whole counsel of God. They never tell you the negative. They just, it's just kind of a motivational speech. And it's fine if we're looking in the mirror and saying, oh, what a wonderful Christian that I am. But there's no strength because there's not that biblical precedence and process that Paul describes pressing Means energy against resistance. And then pressing also carries with it a sense of urgency. Urgency. Our life becomes boring and unhappy when we choose comfort over stimulation. Pleasure over purpose. Entertainment over making a difference. Hey, what's most important to you today here in the house of God? That you leave this place feeling entertained feeling lifted up, or you leave this place knowing that I did something to make a difference in someone else's life. That's what Paul's talking about when he says pressing on toward those things that are above. Pastor in Tennessee, many of you have heard of him, Adrian Rogers, he told about seeing a sign that advertised a drive through passion plate. You know what a passion play is? It depicts all of the sufferings of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And on that sign, it said this. It said, quote, Come experience the life of Christ all from the comfort of your own car. You know what we have there today? We have modern Christianity. Come experience all of the things from Christ, but you don't even have to leave the comfort of your own car. I submit to you here This morning that according to the apostle Paul that that's not a description of the Christian life at all. Because the Christian life is the this one thing, forgetting those things which are behind, but pressing toward the mark, reaching toward the future. This mark that Paul's talking about, look at we, look with me at verse number 12. Paul says, not as though I had already attained Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul's telling us that his target in life is the same as God's target for his life. Can you say the same? That my mark, my goal is the mark that God has set for my life. That word apprehend means to take hold of. To understand. Do you understand? Have you taken hold of the will and the purpose of God for your life? In conclusion, I want to draw your attention to verse number 17. Where Paul says, brethren, be ye followers. He's getting ready to tell us some tragic results. Listen, if you reject the this one thing. If you decide, I don't want to forget the past, I'm just going to waller in it. I'm going to let it define me. I cannot turn loose of it. If you refuse to exert some energy and some pain and some patience toward pressing and reaching toward the future, there are some tragic results that will accompany your life. Verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. What's that ensample? Living life according to this one thing. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. James Chalmers, one of the pioneer missionaries to the island of Papua New Guinea, He came back on his first furlough to England, and he said, you Englishmen think that the missionary makes all of this difference by just standing up in his suit of clothes and preaching to the natives the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he said, I've got news for you. It is the Christian life that they see the difference in that makes the real difference in their culture And in their lives and in their souls. He wasn't minimizing the preaching. He preached every village that he went to. But he knew that the preaching of the gospel of Christ, without the living of it, of those who profess Christ, made the gospel. It rendered it of none effect. Paul says, I tell you, weeping, they're the enemies. People who are saved who claim to know Christ but don't live according to the this one thing, he said, they're just enemies of the cross of Christ. They're hurting the cause, not helping the cause. And he says in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. That's the believer that refuses to live his life according to, to the this one thing. John Wesley described that believer and he says, such are all cowardly, shamefaced, delicate Christians. You know what John Wesley's calling that believer? He's saying, you're a chicken and you're a wimp. That would be modern terminology for John Wesley's statement. And so I close here this morning with just a reminder, Paul's secret to the Christian life. You want to know what the secret is. We all want to have a successful life. You can read all of these books in the bookstore that's got the Christian with the wonderful white teeth and the wonderful life and drives the $350,000 car. And that's just one of the many that he has in his garage and mansion. You can read about all of that and the 10 steps to a better you and your best life now. You can read all of that or you can just read the last seven or eight verses of our text where Paul says the secret to the Christian life is this one thing and it's one, forget those things which are behind. Number two, reach and press toward the mark. God's purpose and your life and please remember that one is useless without the other. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the this one thing that Paul told us about. We thank you for the inspiration of the Bible and for teaching us these things. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to put this into practice in our life. I pray for everyone here that's heard this message, God, that we would be willing to to put the past in the past, to forget it, to not ever again give it our particular attention. And then, Lord, help us to reach and press toward the mark. God, I pray that you'd help us to be the Christians that you'd have us to be, making a difference, pleasing you, putting a smile on your face. Have your will and way in this congregation today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, heads bowed and eyes closed. the pianist plays softly, I wonder. There's a believer here today that something in the message has spoke to your heart. Maybe there's something in your past that you need to come down to this altar and pray and say, God, help me to keep it in the past. Maybe there's something that you know that you need to get out of your comfort zone and out of your complacency and start reaching and start pressing. Start becoming all that Christ wants you to be. The altar's open. If you'd like to come down and pray and talk to God about what He's talked to you about, this would be a wonderful time. No one's looking, every head bowed, every eyes closed. Some have responded, no doubt in my mind, a message like this, that this one thing, something that's this important, this valuable, no doubt, there should be more. If you would, just... Slip out of your seat. Come on down to this altar. And join these that have already come. And ask the Lord for His grace. Ask Him for strength. He'll help you. You know, I think about forgetting the past. Well, I'm not capable of that in my own power. Anytime that I get it in the past, the devil comes along and reminds me of it. He is the accuser of the brethren, by the way. The only way I can deal with him is to just focus on this one thing. You don't have to listen to him. When I get lazy, complacent, satisfied with the way that things are, I'm reminded of this pressing, this reaching. Are you willing to let God stretch you? I'm going to be quiet here for a few minutes and let the Holy Spirit work. The altar is open. If you need to come, then by all means do so. If you need to pray right there where you're at, just do business with God and He'll do business with you.